Hi, I'm Dr. Ann Prisco, president of Holy Family University, and you're listening to Asked and Answered. One's college-age years are a time of discovery and independence, but for a majority, it's an anxious, confusing, difficult journey. In fact, a 2021 study found that three out of five college students meet the criteria for one or more mental health problems. It is of the utmost importance here at Holy Family that we provide our students with easy access to resources and the tools should they need them to navigate difficult times. Joining me in this episode is Dr. Patrick McElwain, a Holy Family University professor and alumnus. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and also licensed professional counselor and a faculty member at the Beck Institute. Dr. McElwain has over 24 years of clinical experience in settings including community mental health, primary care, private practice, and more. With the Beck Institute, Dr. McElwain provides supervision and conducts various workshops focused on cognitive behavior therapy with substance abuse, depression, anxiety, suicide, and trauma. Dr. McElwain serves on the National Alliance on Mental Illness Board of Trustees and the courtesy medical staff at Brooklyn Behavioral Hospital, which means on top of everything else, he's a volunteer. In this episode, Dr. McElwain will share his own story of how a traumatic event in his childhood led to years of mental health issues and substance abuse. Talk about how embracing his 13-year recovery not only saved his life, but led it to being a happy, successful, and fulfilling life. Here at Holy Family, we know Dr. McElwain as Dr. Mac, and I'm so thrilled to introduce you all to Holy Family University's new program director for our Masters of Counseling Psychology program. Dr. Mack, congratulations on the new role, and thank you so much for joining me for this episode and sharing your personal story. It's going to mean a lot to a lot of people that you're willing to share this. So let's begin. I can't wait to talk to you about all the exciting things you're doing here at Holy Family and all the exciting things to come. But for the purpose of this episode, and for those who don't know you, I think it's really important we start with your personal journey. You look at being in recovery as being someone who is resilient, strong, and empowered. I know a question you get asked very often is why you are so open about your recovery. And a big part of your answer is breaking the stigma. And as we unfortunately know, stigma kills. I can remember one of our students coming to speak to me last year when I first started here, talking about wanting to do some sort of initiative. He's African-American male from inner city Philly. And he was thinking how important it would be now that he's at our institution and is learning about psychology. He talked about, we need to do this. Young black men are taught, you know, you're not supposed to talk about Mm -hmm. this stuff. Be strong, buck up. And I looked at him and I said, which social group says it's okay? I grew up in an Italian American household. Name a group that thinks it's okay to that you can ask for help and it's yeah. not a sign of weakness. So, you know, approximately 21 million Americans have at least one addiction. Only 10% receive treatment. Yeah. We're so dedicated yeah. at Holy Family to mental health issues. So how do we break the stigma? First of all, Dr. Prisco, thank you so much for having me on today. I really, really do appreciate it. I was looking forward to it. So a little bit about my journey. I grew up in Northeast Philly. I grew up right down the street from North, uh, from our Holy Family uh, Northeast campus. My dad was a fireman. 
Philadelphia fireman. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and I was nine. My brother was three and my sister was six. And at that time we did suffer a, a real tragedy in our family where my dad died by drowning while we were on vacation. That was a really, it was interesting because that's a turning point in my life. And even at that time, I was, I was a kid. I didn't really understand it. I will say my mom, who was a stay-at-home mom, founded work at Holy Family University. I think if she did not find a place there, I would not have gone to college there. So that is like, it's an amazing journey how things kind of dominoed into where I'm at right now. I don't know if people can see this, but I did have red hair. It's balding now, but I had red hair, freckles. So there was a lot of things I experienced. I experienced bullying. I didn't feel like I was connected to anybody. Alcoholism and drug addiction ran in my family all over. And I started to really gravitate toward drinking alcohol in high school. And then it started to really take over my life during my college years. And then I started to get into drugs. And so I was deeply impacted by addiction. It's one of those things like where I'm at right now, I stigma did play a role because the first step into recovery happened June 23rd, 2005. The only reason why I entered recovery at that time is because I would lose my girlfriend, who's now my wife. I did not get into recovery because it was my decision and I wanted, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I didn't want anybody to know that I was in recovery. I didn't want anybody to know I was addicted to drugs and alcohol, which I do believe 99% of people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol have a co-occurring, whether it's depression, anxiety, trauma, something else going on that is being untreated. So I struggled for a very long time. And you're right. You said stigma kills. And I 100% believe that. What happened was February 12th of 2009, different things kind of turned out. I made a gigantic mistake that occurs quite often for those who, who are active in their addiction. And I went, I, I spoke to somebody and he called me out. He called me out on not being able to accept that I was addicted to drugs and alcohol. I started to realize that I needed to reach out for support and help. I started to work on myself. I started to see patterns that related to me relapsing on alcohol and drugs and, and me being active in my addiction. And I started to work on it. I started to really embrace 12-step meetings. I started to embrace therapy. And by that, I mean, I wasn't always happy to be there. Um, mm. Sometimes I didn't want to be there at all, but I had to be present. I had to be there. And I had millions of thoughts going through my head that this will never work for me. I'm always, if people really did care about me, they wouldn't be upset with me using drugs and alcohol. And I continued to go and things started to get better. And I'll get into it a little bit later, but like, because of going through a lot of difficulties in my recovery and recovery is not easy. Like anybody who is out there in recovery, if you're listening to this and you're struggling early on thinking that it's not going to be for you, that this isn't going to work out, just don't quit. Just keep going day by day, like one day at a time. Oh, dad. Like I had to follow that because I was so focused on the past and all the hardships that I went through and all the shame that I've accompanied, or I was so focused on the future where I never thought that I would get recovery. I never thought I'd be happy. I never thought I'd be feel like a normal person living in my skin. And then things start to work out. And I'm happy where I'm at right now. I, I love that Dr. Prisco was able to go through that a nice introduction about me. But the one thing I'm most proud of is my recovery because it's given me all these things. But I have, I have a beautiful family. Dr. Prisco knows us already. Like I have two beautiful kids. They're 12 and eight. They're the reason why I have no hair right now. So, <laughs> but the recovery does give you so many beautiful things, but it's a lot of work and you have stigma. 
you know, which is a big part of why people abstain from treatment or they quit treatment early. Plus the other things are really getting into like self-growth, self-exploration, how to cope with life on life terms. The people around me and the, the things around me didn't get easier for me. I just know now how to respond to it differently in a healthier Interesting. way. Interesting. And yeah. thank you for sharing that. So a couple of different threads I'm thinking about. One is your own personal decision that this was something that was so important to you that you wanted to make it your life's work. Plenty of people go through recovery and don't become directors of masters in counseling psychology programs, right? Some switch had to go off too about why you thought this would be something you'd want to have as your life's work. Through my addiction, I was a therapist. I knew from a young age that I wanted to help people. I knew that was in my my kind of like personality. But it, it's funny too, because like when you're working with somebody who has drug and alcohol uh, problems, that was really difficult to treat. And I focused more on grief and loss. And I focused more on anxiety and depression, mm. working with uh, children, adolescents, and adults. The turnaround, the interesting turnaround is once I really started to focus on my own health, once I started to really, I started to really love working with individuals who struggle with addiction, who have suicidal thoughts, anxiety, depression, trauma. And I tell all my students here, all the students, and, I, and I'm very open, like I, every person in this world, it'd be great if you were, if you could go see a therapist, if you were financially able to, or like we talked about National Alliance on Mental Illness. There's Philadelphia Bucks, Montgomery County, they're all over. They provide free support groups. It would just be a great way if everybody could see a therapist and do something for their mental and emotional health. Because we're very preventative when it comes down to our physical health. I should be a little bit more preventative. I should go for a jog a little bit more. But I think when it comes to our mental and emotional health, the narrative when it comes down to seeing a therapist is like, what happened? Something bad must have happened if you had to go. And when it comes down to teaching in our program, every therapist, every psychologist, psychiatrist should have either seen a therapist or have been or are in therapy. Because you really have to know what it's like to sit in a waiting room, to wait for your therapist to come online if you're seeing them on Zoom, to really start to explore and be vulnerable if you're going to practice as a practitioner. I think that's crucial. And I started to really love working with addiction. I worked at an inpatient psychiatric facility in Fort Washington. It was a great experience. That's where my name, Dr. Mack, originated from. My first group there when it was designated by a patient. You're Dr. Mac. All right, I'm Dr. Mac. That sounds good. But like you saw people come in who were were hopeless, who actively wanted to die, wanted to, wanted to. They've been either been struggling with trauma for since they were kids, since they were like brought into this world. They were struggling with addiction, and I really started to see my work with suicide and addiction and anxiety, depression, and trauma flourish. You know, and it's it was a beautiful thing, and I I think a lot of it has to do with our ability to connect with clients, our ability to connect with patients. When I made the choice to be open about my own recovery, it was a scary choice. I talked to my own therapist about it. I talked to my family about it. I wanted to make sure if I was open about my recovery, that I was doing it for the right reasons and not a way of like helping myself. In a way, it really does help because I'm very open. I'm held accountable. But I also wanted to make sure that I could be a role model the people out there who are struggling. If you told me 13 years ago that I would be a program director at the counseling psychology program that I attended, 
that I would have two beautiful children be happily married. And just the one thing that is interesting, because I never thought this would ever happen. I would not trade my life with anybody. I mean, with anybody. And I was really ashamed and I was scared of people knowing who I really was, the true me. And now I use the words all the time. I feel resilient, strong, and empowered. Anybody out there who's struggling right now with depression, anxiety, trauma, addiction, and you're sitting at home debating on whether to talk to somebody or give somebody a call, that's it right there. You reaching for the phone, are you getting on to an email, or are you contacting someone through Zoom? That's strength. That's resilience. That's empowerment. When I have somebody in a group talking about trauma that they experience, and at that time in, the, in this group, with maybe 15 other people feeling like they're the weakest, most vulnerable person in the world, everybody else in that group, all they see is strength. All they see from that person is what an resilient. interesting perspective because we don't feel that way individually. A hundred percent. And that's what, that's what therapy does. And that's what my students here, the work I do for the Beck Institute, this is what we're trying to really change the narrative of mental health. You know, going to therapy is a great thing. It's something to be proud of. I think we're putting dents in stigma. Yeah. And, and certainly have a long way to go. Yeah. So talk a little bit about this Beck commitment you have with the Beck Institute and also NAMI, because I think that'll help also share information about resources. Yeah, great. The Beck Institute was founded by Aaron Beck in 1960. He's the founder of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. In 1994, Aaron Beck and his daughter, Judy Beck, started the Beck Institute. It's the Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And what they do there is they provide all over the world trainings, consultation, supervision with CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is evidence-based, meaning it, it works. And basically, I, I look at the Beck Institute. I also look at the work that you know we do in our program as like really training an army of amazing therapists to do amazing work out there. With the Beck Institute, I've done workshops all over the world. I've supervised and consulted people all over the world from Saudi Arabia, Germany, Singapore, New Zealand, Canada, all over the U.S. I did a workshop with the U.S. Navy in Okinawa, Japan at the U.S. Naval Hospital focused on suicide prevention. I did a workshop for suicide prevention and substance use at the Oneida Nation, which is a Native American tribe in Wisconsin. And just meeting just amazing people. I believe there's a lot of theoretical orientations at work out there. Like like DBT and ACT and psychoanalytic. Personally and professionally, I've just seen cognitive behavioral therapy work for so many people. And the other thing that I love about CBT is that you can take from other theoretical orientations, like the interventions and stuff to really be client centered and person centered regarding treatment goals and interventions. And I've been working with the Beck Institute for about six years. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, I'm on the board of NAMI Bucks County. I live in Montgomery County. So, and I'm very familiar with NAMI Bucks and NAMI Montgomery County. They are amazing. They provide free support groups to anyone who is managing or struggling with mental illness, but also they they run a lot of support groups for loved ones of those struggling with mental illness. They offer free support groups. So if you contact anybody from NAMI Bucks, Philadelphia Bucks, I mean, Philadelphia NAMI, NAMI Montgomery County, you can get connected with free mental health support. So basically you are connecting yourself with people who will support you through the worst times of your life, who will help you find that light. 
being on the board, I'm able to see the inner internal workings of it. And it, it's just, it's just people who just want to help. It's, 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 it's really amazing. I don't want to be negative at this point, but we know we just keep hearing about how stretched all these services yeah. are coming out of COVID that COVID yeah. certainly added this health pandemic just added a whole nother level on top of everything else we were all experiencing. So even if people weren't in any sort of trauma now, they might be, or they're yeah. experiencing some mm -hmm. sort of something from yeah. what we've all been through, right? I don't think we've quite even got a handle on it yet as a, as a right. society. For all the National Alliance for Mental Illness agencies out there, nonprofits, they're all volunteers. They're all volunteer basis. But the one thing that I, I love from Bucks County, NAMI, NAMI Bucks is they do a lot of support groups. They offer a lot. The executive director there, the name Debbie Moritz, there's the uh, director of outreach and development, Dr. Prisco, which I would love for you to meet him. His name's Nick Amy. He is uh, someone who lives with uh, schizoaffective disorder. He's attempted suicide multiple times. He's in recovery from drugs and alcohol. He's just an amazing, inspirational person. But what I love what they would do with all their volunteers is they would give them a week off. And some of them, there's paid positions, even though they're volunteers. They would just say, hey, mental health break, we all deserve one. We're giving everybody a week off. And I, and I thought, like, that what a good way of modeling, taking care of yourself, putting yourself first as a means of putting that into place. Because a lot of times people who are in those positions, they really start to burn out and have compassion fatigue. And I totally understand this. If they're not helping another person and they're focusing on themselves, they're like, what's going on with the other people that I should be helping? So. so there's constant guilt. We're good about guilt, huh? Yeah, there's I mean, yes. beings, we're good about layering guilt on ourselves. Mm. So when you think about your work and the program here and services available, part of what I'm always thinking about is what do we tell young people right now? And I mean, when I say young people, you know, we know we serve students of all ages and yeah. genders and ethnicities mm. and backgrounds, and we love our diversity. So a couple of things I was wondering. One is with all of the different audiences that you've spoken to in this role. You mentioned, you know, a tribal community. I'm assuming, you know, you're in more affluent areas, you're in low income areas. Mm -hmm. Does things strike you as being incredibly similar or different? Like does anything really pop one way or the other? I think it's what we've we've spoken about with all populations. And I think you you said it in the very beginning, it's the stigma. It's feeling less than it's feeling like I'm a burden to other people. It's feeling that I'm not good enough. Like I, I'm ashamed. And then mm -hmm. accompanied with these horrible thoughts and feelings that you have. And when it doesn't, like a lot of times people who work recovery, it's a process. And I know for myself, I wanted to, let's go. I should be feeling better right now. I've been in, I've been doing this for three months. Come on now. And it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It, it's, it's a real, it's a real process. I'm always hearing about the, the struggles that clients and individuals that work with patients have with stigma. The other thing too is for people out there, for clients and patients, the right fit therapist, that relationship means a lot. And I think sometimes what I hear for people, and I saw, I saw this a lot when I was in the hospital, and I hear this a lot from other uh, professionals in the field. If you go out to eat somewhere and you don't like the service or the food, you might not go back to that restaurant but you're still going to go out to eat and still going to have, like go out there. I know I am anyway, <laughs> like the way I, the way I like to eat. But when people go and see a therapist that might not be the right fit, it may not have connected, or maybe the therapist wasn't any great. They stop going and they wait. That's so interesting, right? How many of us have had a bad year in school when you think about how many years we all spend in school and not every teacher is a home run oh. teacher for you or right. But you don't 100%. say I'm not going to. 
to go to school anymore. <laughs> yeah, uh, and a hundred percent. Like I think I've said that a couple times to myself growing <laughs> up, but it's one of them things. And I tell people like it may take you three or four times to to find that right fit, but once you do, it can the results could be beautiful. But you have that experience along with stigma. And along with other things, you know, connected to like people looking for medication to be that like 180, everything gets great, accompanied with the environment that they're living in that might not be that healthy. Right. It's there's so many different things, but I think the relationship with that you can have with your therapist or your psychologist or your psychiatrist and stigma, like those are the two things that I'll hear a lot. The other thing that I've been very happy with all the agencies I've gone to, knock on wood right now, there are some amazing therapists, psychologists, nurses, like social workers, you name it, some amazing. And I tell everybody this, I tell my students too, I judge you. As a trainer, as a, as, as doing, I will judge you. And the way I judge you as a therapist, a social worker, psychiatrist, nurse, is would I send my loved ones to you? Hmm. Like if my loved ones need help, would I send them to you? And the majority is yes. I mean, empathic, smart, able to connect, meet the client where they're at and really develop some appropriate and like out of the box interventions and treatment goals. It's beautiful to see. And I wish people would hear that. Like there are some, um, you hear about the, the tough ones out there and there are in every field, but there are some amazing therapists out there that could, could really be a life changer. And so when you're thinking about your own decision based on your life experience and your own, as you said, your own personality and what you thought your strong attributes were and giving back is clearly one of them. We use the term counseling psychology, like we know what that is. So if I want to see a therapist, what's the difference between saying I'm going to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Do you even know what those different credentials are when someone's an MACP or a PsyD, right? Maybe just walk us through that a little bit. A psychologist, a clinical psychologist is somebody who has a doctorate in that field. In Pennsylvania, we're looking at like licensed clinical social worker and LPC, which are therapists who are licensed in Pennsylvania, either in social work or marriage and family, LMFT. And then you also have master's level therapists who don't have their license yet. Maybe they might be going toward it, but so there's all levels. Like you have a master's level clinician You have licensed LPC or LCSW, licensed clinical social worker, and then you have a psychologist, and that's all related to like the psychology counseling. On the other side, you have psychiatrists, and psychiatrists are the ones who are going to prescribe the medication. If I'm seeing somebody who has pretty significant depression or uh, drug addiction or alcoholism or you name it, I always talk about three things. Perfect triad could be, if it's helpful to you, getting a support group, whether through NAMI or any of those 12-step groups, which I go through the pros and cons of what to what you might experience with a 12-step group. I, I always think no matter what group you attend, if you can focus on one positive thing that can help you, that'll filter out all the negative. Seeing a therapist and the therapist, the right fit. And you know what? Truthfully, you can interview your therapist. This is your therapist. I always end my therapy sessions with, how was this session? Is there anything I could do to make this a better session for you? Because I want to know. I want that feedback. I'm not perfect. And then the other thing too is medication. I'm working with a psychiatrist. Like right now in my private practice, I collaborate with a psychiatrist 
because one of my clients is on medication. So I provide the counseling part, the say the, the one hour long sessions, and the psychiatrist will meet with her about 10 to 15 minutes to adjust medication. And we, and it's a good relationship. So we have good feedback and she is also attending 12 step meetings. So you're seeing the three aspects that can support her. And with her, when it came down to like the 12 step meetings, she tried it before it didn't work. She didn't like some of the people in there. There are certain things that have gone on in 12 step meetings that she wasn't connecting with. And one of the things I would always say to her, no matter what group or 12 step meeting you're going, filter out all the negatives, because there's going to be a lot, especially when you're anxious, depressed, or you're going through struggles with addiction. And what's one positive thing? And maybe the positive thing is I stayed the whole time. Dr. Mack will be happy to hear this. Or maybe it's I connected to that one lady, what she said in the back. You're trying to start this, break that negative feedback loop and really start to restructure the way you think about, you know, your activities, your events, yourself. Usually when folks are addicted, it's part of the addiction is the immediacy of the high. So I, I mean, what you're explaining to me is hard work and time. And, you know, if you were seeking those quick fixes and then you tell someone, and now you have to do hard work and you're feeling guilty about the whole thing anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, you you could see how there's multiple levels that you have to deal with and with an individual, but you see it coming out of grief and loss. So, So you say grief, loss, depression, and anxiety, right? We keep hearing about anxiety a lot, which makes sense in our world right now. I think, Yeah. I think if you're not anxious about something, you're not paying attention. There's a lot, right? Like don't really try not to watch the news at night. (laughs) So Yeah, I did hear a recent statistic, like people who are happy are, are actually less engaged with the news on a daily, like they watch and listen to less news. It's like, well, I've actually told some of my clients, don't watch the news. Like, we're good. We're good. We, we get it. Like, after you watch the news, you're anxious for an hour. What's going to happen? Let's do some reading. <laughs> Yeah, or a little less frequency or something. And, and someone who's just as guilty as anyone about yeah, like always same. feeling like I same need here. to know what's going on, right? So when when you think about our students and the students you're working with and your own clients, think about, I'm always struggling. What do I tell my our 18 and 20-year-olds and even our 28-year-olds and yeah. 35-year-olds who are coming back and juggling family and school and complicated lives? I love the term resilience. We talk a lot about the fact that, you know, our students are the kind of people that have the kind of grit that you've demonstrated. So just talk to me a little bit. What what do you say? Help me figure out what do I say at our convocation to inspire our new students? When I view resilience, grit, strength, and empowerment, I I really look at it as not somebody who's just gritted, bear it, and whatever comes my way, I'll go work through it. Ask for help if you need it. It's okay. It's okay not to be okay, you know. And I, I think that's where I start to see strength and resilience. You know, kind of like we talked about earlier with the woman in my group who's crying and being very vulnerable. At that time, she feels like she's not strong, but to every other person listening to her, she's the strongest person they've in the world right now. And I really want our students and my clients to know that your mental health is important. Therapy and asking for help are are signs of strength. I hear it a lot from men who call me up and it's like, hey, you know, like I know I'm supposed to just, you know, not talk about my feelings and I'm supposed to just be this big man and just get over it. What are you, a punk? You know, all this kind of things. And I'm sitting there going like, that's what's killing us. Like that's what's killing men. 
So I, I really want to change the narrative of the way we look at mental health. It doesn't have to be a reaction. And, and sometimes I'll hear people fall into that where they find out someone's in therapy and they'll say, I wonder what's wrong. You know, like that's, that's, that's actually, you're right. That's, I mean, and I might've been guilty myself because that is the first thing you think I, of. I know for a fact I was guilty of it because I, yeah. that's where my mindset, because I was struggling. It's like, I wonder what's wrong. But, and it's funny too, because at the hospital I worked at it, the culture was different because like my clinical director, I'd be like, Hey, where, what are you doing? It's a Wednesday night. And she'll be like, Oh, I'm going to a therapy appointment. And I'm like, it was so natural. And so like, whatever, it just, it, it flew by. But even when people are like pro like therapy, you'll hear this, like, and I, oh, I love talking to students about this and doing my workshops because when you hear that someone's in therapy, it's like, oh, that's great. Hey, Ann, we have to be careful with what we say to Jen because she's in therapy right now. Like it, everything changes because you think that just because someone's in therapy, they're, they're at a point where they're, they're struggling or you have to be really sensitive around them. Therapy is amazing. And be you know, proud of it. You know what I was thinking? So could we imagine a day where it's like we have de- we have a dentist? Everybody has a dentist. It doesn't mean we have bad teeth. It means I, we're trying to take care of our teeth. So we all go to dentists. Like, is it going to be someday everybody's got, of course, I have a therapist. Like, don't yeah. you have a therapist? I have a therapist. I would love that. I and, and, and it's funny you say that because like, if you look at like people at the gym, we're, we're not going up to them being like, hey, you're working out pretty hard. What's going on? Like, what do you, what negative Yeah, what do you work it out here? (laughs) Why are you working out? Oh, to prevent anything from happening? Oh, that's strange. Like, that would be a great way how we, like, go into a therapist, go into a 12-step meeting, go into NAMI, just doing something that is, you know, therapeutic. It's not a reaction. It's to prevent, or it's to increase our toolbox of coping strategies, of ways of dealing with stress. It's just another healthier way to live our life. Part of what you just said is really important about how do we even reframe the narrative around therapy? Because right up until now, therapy has been something you seek out because there is something in you that's telling you you need therapy rather than, well, of course we all need therapy. Mm-hmm. That's that should be the launching point, right? Rather than it's unusual for someone to have a therapist. So yeah. there's a signal that you there's something wrong, and that's why you have to go to a therapist. And that's what I love. Like I tell all the my all my students and all the if a client asks you, have you ever been in therapy? Your first immediate answer should be like, Yeah, yeah, I do. Right away. Like sometimes we're like, Well, I don't know. This isn't about me. This is about you. No, you don't want to say that. You want to say, Yes, I am, because I believe in it. Now, if they get a little more personal, then you have to direct them back. But your immediate response should be, yes, I'm in therapy, because I believe it works. If we start to change the way, like if somebody asks, you know, another professor, like, hey, you know, Pat, I'm, I'm, heading, to, I'm heading to my therapy appointment tonight. I'll talk to you later. Like if we start that change and just being like open about it, you know, I, I thought that was one of the things that the hospital did for me is really just started to put it out there. Like, all right. So, cause you'll hear people say like, ah, I'm going home to, I can't wait to have a glass of wine or I'm going home to, to deal with the, like, the, the managed kids, or I'm going out to the ball game. You know, part of it could be like, Hey, I'm going to my therapy appointment tonight. And that's it. You don't have to say like, what's wrong? Be like, all right, cool. Have fun. And just, yeah. Just, Amen. So we're going to work on that one. That'll be our mission. That's our mission. That's, that's it. Our mission. Yeah, Dr. Crystal, mission. We're, we're already doing that. We're already doing that. I know. So far, so good. We're one week into a semester, barely. Good classes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm having, I, I, like we talked about today, like the counseling psychology program here for the listeners out there 
we have a gold standard. That's what we kind of like, that's what we want to get. We want to get our students to be ethical, multicultural, competent therapists that are going to do amazing things in the world of psychology. It's interesting. I always tell people like our Holy Family University students, when they leave here, I want people to be like, what school did they come from? In a way that shows, but they're amazing. And I, and I think that's what, I think that's what we're producing here. Our program's really experiential. You're going to know how to handle addiction, stigma, crisis, you name it, trauma. Our students are going to be prepared. What's cool about teaching in a program is psychology and therapy in the rooms of the 12 steps may not have the big, the best reputation, you know, and I, I love changing that. I love getting our students and even the work I do for the Beck Institute, people prepared and people to like really change the narrative of what it's like to go to therapy. And I love the fact that the majority of our students will stay and work in this area. So yeah. they'll stay in yep. Bucks and Montgomery and Philly and, and they'll take care of the very families like you are, where, where you came from. So yeah. blessings on your work. We could talk about this all day. Yeah. I know that. And congratulations. I should say to you, congratulations, 13 years sober. Thank you so much. That's pretty Thank amazing. You. Yeah. When's your birthdays? I should know when your birthday is. So I can say, so, to tell me. So the date for my, yeah. for my sober is February 12th. My birthday, which by the way, and everybody will get a kick out of this. So my birthday is July 11th. Stop. So is my younger son. Is it? Oh, that's yes. So in my house, my girls, they don't consider it my birthday. They consider it free Slurpee Day from 7-Eleven. So, so it's like, it's not like, Dad, happy birthday. It's like, hey, are we getting a free Slurpee from 7-Eleven today? Yeah, like, yeah. We got our priorities. Exactly. And 7-Eleven is a wonderful birthday, but I imagine February 11 is pretty damn special too. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting because I think almost like every year I'll look at my wife and be like, Wow, I, I can't believe this. And and I would not, I know for a fact, and I would not be here if it wasn't for my recovery. And I tell people this all the time, like, and I tell people who are in treatment or in recovery from a mental health diagnosis and or addiction, I was very lucky to live through my addiction, but there was no luck that went into my recovery. Like I worked my butt off. I did the things I needed to do to make it to another day. And I want people to know that if you have a mental health diagnosis, and or an addiction, and you're taking it one day at a time, don't quit. Just keep moving forward. Your days will get better. You might have a day where it may feel like nothing will ever help you, and you're going to be stuck for the remainder of your life. Just don't quit. And there's always, always somebody out there that will lend a hand and support you, or just lend an ear and listen to you. So I just want everybody not to forget that. Dr. Mack, not only did you attend Holy Family, you were student government president, and your mom also worked at Holy Family University, as you shared with us. So this question is something I usually ask, and it may feel more personal to you since you were a student with us. But given you share with us how you struggled with your own mental health issues while you were a student, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your college-age self? What I would advice I would give my college-age self is that to reach out and talk to somebody. There's a lot of people on this campus right now that uh, I think our counseling psychology department, I think our the counseling center, they're just amazing people that 
if I would have just sat down and with somebody from, from one of those offices and said, listen, I think my drinking's getting out of hand, or I'm noticing a problem with my relationships and it happens whenever I drink, I started to see warning signs and I did not really do anything. I kind of ignored it. I used a lot of defense mechanisms. I don't regret anything that has happened in my life because it's gotten me to this place. But I think one of the things that would have been helpful is to reach out to somebody and help. I, mm-hmm. I also think this university is doing a nice job and we have the collegiate recovery program grant that will also help this out is when we see warning signs from a student that we could be more proactive. Like if a student is in the back of the room with their head on the desk, maybe it's not because they just don't care about the class or maybe it's not because they're unmotivated and they don't care about school. Maybe it's because they did a little bit more drinking last night or they're under the influence. Maybe. And maybe the conversation could be like, hey, I noticed this. What's going on? You can talk to me. I want to help you. I truthfully don't know if a professor or somebody would have come up to me and said that. I, I don't know if that would have helped. I may have just brushed them off. But I, I, I really, I had many opportunities, I think, to say, like, I, I need help. That didn't happen. So that's probably the, the biggest kind of advice I would, I like talking. So why couldn't I just talk about this with somebody? There you Um, go. Well, and I think the comfort level to be willing to ask the question and know how to manage what you're going to do when the student tells you is one thing we have to prepare our folks and we do that. And the other thing I always say is like it or not, but when you attend a school like ours as a university, no one's anonymous here, I love right? That. So we have small mm-hmm. classes. You're in the back of the room with your head down. You're not in an auditorium. Somebody's yeah. going to notice you. Yeah, right? I love that. And call 100%. you out. Call you out. Just say, Are you okay? Why is your head down? Right. And that, that's perfect. Because maybe that student, maybe if you would have done that to me, I would have been like, Dr. Prisco, I need help. And then see what goes on from there. So I, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think that hopefully people listen to this who are, in our, in our university or another university or anybody, reach out to somebody. And even if you don't know what to say, you can say, I don't even know what to say. I'm struggling. Well, thank you, Dr. Mack. One, for your contributions. We're so proud that you're here at Holy thank Family you. University and an alum and, and doing all this great work in preparing the next you know generation of, of counseling psych people to be out in our communities. I know you, you put stuff on our website, right? So if you go to holyfamily.edu, you'd find if anyone's interested in finding out more about Dr. Mack's work or the program. And also, I think really important is this text that's now available, yep. right? 988. Yep. So if you or anyone you know ever needed immediate help for suicide, mental help, substance abuse, right? 988, I guess. 988, that's the national number. hotline now. That's right. Great. So thank God there's something for, for folks to reach out to. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you Dr. I, we have to do this again at a certain, a certain point, see how it's how we're doing with our, with our students and our advancements and our programs. Yeah. So thank you very much. Dr. Briscoe, I just want to say thank you for everything you've done for us in the past year. You're an amazing leader. And I think I can speak for the entire university. We just really appreciate you. Thank you. And I'm real honored to be here. I appreciate all. I call you treasures. You're my treasures. I appreciate so, you. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm Dr. Ann Prisco, and thank you for listening. Thank you.